Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders. I really want to thank you for tuning in again, and I invite you to go to outcomesrocket.com slash reviews. Tell us what you thought about today's episode. We love to hear from our listeners, and our guests are so amazing, and we want to hear what you think about them. So without further ado, I want to introduce our outstanding guest today. Her name is Malia Sharva, Dr. Malia Sharva. She's the CEO and founder at Savonics. At Savonics, they deliver a valid research-based mobile digital cognitive assessment at less than 5% of the cost and effort of current pen and paper and most web-based computer-assisted methods. The Savonics mobile assessment platform evaluates all core domains of cognition, including areas such as attention, emotion regulation, impulse control in approximately 30 minutes, all from a smartphone and mobile device. Pretty cool stuff that they're doing over there globally. And uh, besides that, you know, Malia's got a tremendous amount of experience across consulting as well as healthcare in general. But what I want to do is open up the microphone and let Malia fill in any of the gaps. Welcome to the podcast, Malia. Hi, Saul. Thanks for having me. That's such a great intro. Wow. I'm like, we do all that? Sometimes I get surprised when I hear other people talk about what we do. Because day to day, you can sometimes get down in the weeds. But it's so great to talk about the big vision. Because when I think about Savonics, what I think about is a technology that helps us move one step closer to a world without dementia. And when we talk about dementia, most people think of that as an age-related progressive decline. But dementia can also occur secondary to conditions like type 1 diabetes or secondary to a stroke or secondary to thyroid disease. Mm -hmm. And these are often treatable. And in fact, much of dementia is preventable or treatable. And as we look to the future with living longer lives and looking at the actualized self. One of the things that I really want to do is move us to a healthier world by recognizing cognition as a vital component of our health. Yeah, I think that's a great call out, um, and thank you for filling in the gaps there. You know, a lot of times, and I think it's getting better now, we're beginning to incorporate that cognitive health as part of the entire wellness picture. And I think what you guys are doing there, you and your team is just uh critical. And so a big thanks for me and everybody that's listening for what you guys are doing so far. Thanks. Yeah. For me, it started, you know, people ask, when did Savonic start? And we founded the company in uh, 2015 as a C-Corp. I started working on it full-time a year before, but, you know, most founders know how that is. There's usually a year with no money where you're getting it all together, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go out and you raise the money and you put the company in the market. But this really started for me when I was a teenager and I was standing in my mother's kitchen and I was interacting with my grandmother and we were doing something. We were making a dish we had cooked hundreds of times before. And I handed my grandmother something and she didn't, all of a sudden she didn't know what to do. And, mm. and I didn't know what to do because I was a young girl. I was, yeah. uh, I was 13 and it was the first time I, I encountered cognitive impairment. And then, you know, I went on to train to be a neuropsychologist and to be a neuroscientist. 
And, you know, another salient time where this hit my life was uh, diagnosed a, a woman with early onset Alzheimer's disease. She was in her 40s and she had wow. twin girls who were mm. two years old. And you, you go through that and, and you're very clinical and you help the family and you are the rock for the husband and, and her mother who was still alive and just devastated, as you can imagine. And then I remember sitting in my car that evening before I drove home and just weeping because... Mm. I was thinking of my own relationship with my mom yeah. and how much I value that as an adult woman and how those girls would never have that joy. And that woman would never see her daughters grow up and graduate college and start careers and get married and have families. And it is such a, a horrible, devastating disease. And then anybody who's read my bio knows that then my husband experienced traumatic brain injury. And that was actually just a few months after that case. And so there's this blue line through my entire history around cognition and its critical importance to health. So this for me is something that the world needs, but it also happens to be something that I think through both personal experience and professional training, I feel very uniquely, hopefully qualified to address. No, and, and you know, I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. Let's take a, um, and, and again, I want to thank you for sharing those stories. It's um, without a doubt, you are the right person at the right time for the job. And so it's a sad reality when it does hit our families. And when we get to this topic of mental health, and particularly the areas that you're focused on, Malia, what do you think should be on healthcare leaders agenda? And how are you guys approaching that? Yeah, so that is such a really, really important discussion that we should be having right now because we go to the doctor every year and we get our vital signs tested, right? And I just gave a talk recently and, and it was to a group of physicians and everybody in the room knew their LDL cholesterol level. I know mine. Everybody knew their blood pressure, right? Pretty yes. much everybody, like 98% of the room. They knew their resting pulse rate. They knew their weight. They knew their, you know, all these things about them, but they didn't know anything about their working memory or their executive function. Hmm. And yet, as I pointed out to them, we were all going to leave that meeting and we were going to get in our cars and drive, which is going to require visual spatial memory and working memory and executive function. Then we're going to maybe stop on the way home at the grocery store and we have to remember what we need to buy, working memory, executive function, thinking and planning meals for the week, right? Thinking of, oh yeah, the kid has got a field trip, so I have to do this, right? You're holding all this in your head. And our cognitive abilities have the most fundamental impact on our day-to-day -day lives, and yet we don't measure it at every annual checkup. Wow. And when we think about that, when we think about that cognition drives our personalities and it drives our ability to just drive our car, shop yes. for groceries, remember what's going on with our kids, who has to be where and when, when that falls apart, it's like the person isn't even there anymore, right? And you, we've all probably experienced this in our families or with friends. And so there's nothing more fundamental to our health. And yet we ignore this wow. area of healthcare. And I think to our own detriment. What a great point and something that, you know, I keep wowing over here and it's just like, you're so right. If we take the time to measure all of these other vitals, why not measure something that's so critical to our day to day? And so what yeah. would you say the answer to that is? Well, you know, that was what got me started thinking about founding Savonics because okay. when we needed cognitive testing, for instance, for my husband, when he was hit by a car and, and we needed all these, I mean, he needed a ton of tests, but cognition right. was one of them. And it was a 16 month wait list to see a neuropsychologist. <sighs> yeah. Months? Yeah. Because at last months? count, 16 months, oh, because at last count, there are only 1,002 board certified neuropsychologists in the U.S. and Canada. Now, Wow. And there are more than 48 million Americans that have some kind of cognitive impairment. Hmm. Now, think about that. Just hold that 48 million people that have been diagnosed, let alone all the people that haven't. That's with right. With 1,002 providers. Now, cardiovascular disease. So 27 million Americans, about half the number, 
right, have some kind of cardiovascular disease. But there are 23,000 board-certified cardiologists. So you've got a service gap here. Mm -hmm. We have our education system is lagging around the way we educate neuropsychologists to test. Pen and paper tests have been around since the 30s and 40s. Uh, largely came out of the military in World War II and testing soldiers. They're very effective, but you need one of these neuropsychologists to administer them, score them, and report them. And the average cost is $8,000 to get a cognitive screen. So it's not only, it's time consuming, it's cost prohibitive, and they're a wait list. And it's all task-based metrics. It's connect these dots. It's push the button for the color, not the word that you see on the screen. These are all tasks. And I started thinking, you know, and they're all measured based on accuracy and reaction time. That's how they're scored, accuracy and reaction time. Mm -hmm. And when my own husband needed this, I looked at the digital tools that were available, a lot, largely desktop. I didn't like them. They were all point and click. When you do cognitive testing, my patients, when I was testing them, they were drawing, uh, copying figures and rearranging objects in space for visual spatial tasks. And there's a tapping test. Um, it's called the GoNoGo. -Go. There's also the tapping test. They're frontal lobe tests. They're great, but you can't turn the entire battery into a tapping test or you're losing a piece of measuring functionality. So mm -hmm. I started thinking about what would it take to do it right if we were going to put these tests into the computer. And let's all just admit, everybody says, is it as good? Is it as good as the pen and paper? I don't know. You tell me. Do you think the computer is better at measuring reaction time? <laughs> I think so. It's accurate to a thousandth of a millisecond. The human eye is accurate to about a second. Is it better at measuring accuracy? Yes, because it doesn't make mistakes, and people do. And plus, it's not biased. It didn't lose sleep last night because its toddler was up crying. It didn't have a yeah. fight with its spouse, right? The computer's better, period. And I thought about all this, and I was like, what would it take to build it? And I started investigating this. This was while I was at Stanford. I was thinking, like, what would it take? And I looked into it, and I looked into the kind of engineering, and I decided it would take building in a gaming engine, that this wasn't going to be cheap to build. It was going to take a lot of money. Because to do it right, we had to use very sophisticated Twitch-based mechanics similar to those used in the world's most sophisticated interplay games like World of Warcraft. So I had a consulting business on the side, and I was spending some of my own time and money looking into this. And then um, I came to a decision point. Um, I had an offer from a very prestigious medical school to join the faculty, and it was either go into academic medicine and continue to practice or start this company and do this. And I felt very strongly that what the world really needed more from me wasn't for me to just be in the treatment room and educating students, which I can still do in my current role in many ways in a different version. Yes. But what the world really needed was a solution to this problem if we looked 20, especially 20 years out um, with an aging population. And my vision, and we have achieved it, is that an 80-year-old woman in rural China with no money, who's very poor, can afford and can take a cognitive screen that is designed and delivered by Stanford doctors. That was the world I wanted to create with nice. this company. I love it. I love your vision, Melia. And this is the really fascinating thing of this whole perspective and this journey that you've decided on is that you mentioned the numbers for cardiologists to the number of patients with heart failure. So that's because of the codes, right? These payment codes are aligned with the professions. And you've taken a route that's been, I think of kind of like Dean Ornish, you know, he had his whole thought about what he did and what can help heart failure patients. And he spent 16 years working on it, and then finally got a Medicare, Medicaid approval code for what he's doing. This is the long game. 
and you're going after a space that is definitely needed, but may not be as paid for as it sits today. Yeah, it's true. So reimbursement for cognitive testing is really low, which is one of the challenges. There are CPT codes that exist for, to get reimbursed for cognitive testing, but it reimburses very low. It reimburses somewhere, anywhere on the low end, but around $25 on the high end, about three or 400. But when you think about the cost of administering pen and paper tests, it's an upside down thing for the healthcare system or the doctors, right? It's costing them way more money to employ a neuropsychologist or to hire one on referral and to, to sure. do this testing than they will ever get back. So the beauty of digital tests, and we are currently in the market and reimbursed in the US healthcare system, because okay. we didn't reinvent the wheel. We digitized gold standard metrics that have been Love around, it. you know, in Thanks many 78 years. Right. Yeah. We, these are tests that neuropsychologists would recognize and that when we put them in front of doctors, they're like, oh, trails. They're like, yeah, got it. Know what that is. <laughs> yeah. So we are reimbursed. And the key is we cost less than the reimbursement pays. So we flip that economic dynamic for the provider. And what that does is it makes it much more possible to do this. We also represent our results graphically in real time on mobile and on desktop to clinicians. And that's critical because they're not waiting on a big, clunky five-page PDF report, which is what neuropsychologists typically generate, and trying to sort through paragraphs and paragraphs of text to find the things that they really want to know, which is working memory. Where is it at? Is it in the low range, the low average range, the high the average range, the high average range, or the high range? And what is the percentile score? And what are the implications behaviorally for that score? So we just present that in a, on a, like a graph in, in quintiles. There, it's color-coded so that you can kind of see, oh, red's not good, right? Very low. You hover over it, you get the percentile. And then if you click on that, what you get is like this patient scored poorly on visual spatial memory. They're going to struggle with day-to-day activities like X, Y, and Z. So we try to present the results in a way that's just really fast and easy to digest for providers because having worked in very busy hospitals, you know, I understand clinical workflow Mm -hmm. and the fact that you don't have a lot of time So we need to give you, as a provider, the data in a way that you can utilize it rapidly. I think that's so awesome. So you've got a lot of things going on, a lot of things cooking, new projects. What would you say today is one of your most exciting projects within your company? I can't say who the partner is yet because we're going, we're kind of doing this on the stealth and we'll, oh, we'll probably make an announcement in 2018. All right. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> we can have me back and we'll talk about it. So right. We're working with a global um, healthcare company and we're kicking off a pilot project in diabetes type 1. Diabetes type 1 is autoimmune disease. I just wrote an article on LinkedIn talking about the relationship between autoimmune diseases and cognition, which is very strong. There was uh, Betty Diamond gave a talk at TEDMED this year about that. She studies lupus and she talked about how her patients are always referred to psychiatrists for their cognitive problems as though it's a separate disease. It's not. It's part of the disease, especially when it's not well managed. So to recognize looking to track cognition the way that we track insulin behavior and the way that we track blood glucose and A1C level in these patients because it's such a vital part of their ability to manage the disease. When cognition starts to slip, it's a very good indicator in many of these diseases for what's going on with the larger disease state because it is a symptom that then when it gets worse, everything else gets worse. Because when I cannot pay attention and think and plan and remember, 
I cannot manage my own diabetes. I cannot manage my lupus. I cannot manage my hypertension. And then the healthcare system says to me, oh, you're a non-compliant patient, bad patient, bad, without considering that, in fact, what is happening is my disease is causing cognitive impairment that then has a negative feedback loop around a downward spiral around that disease state. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the thing that keeps going through my head, Malia, and, and congrats on that, by the way, I think it's fascinating that you guys have linked up these two. It's like, why doesn't this, you know, like I go to my primary care every single year and I take these tests, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Why not just include a cognitive test as part of that? Standard. Make it standard. Hey, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just would make so much sense. What's holding it back? Why can't we get there? There's a lot of things. I mean, I think doctors are, you've got to look at the way our healthcare system is structured in the United States. And I don't think anybody would disagree when I say it's broken, right? Yeah. The incentives aren't aligned. Keeping patients healthy isn't aligned with the economics of our healthcare system with third-party payers. It doesn't work well. And part of that is payments. So reimbursement to providers has dropped horrifically over the past five years. Most people don't realize that the average doctor, the average hospital, the average physical therapist is struggling to keep the lights on. I'll give you a really good example. My own healthcare insurance provider, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Mm -hmm. I was seeing a physical therapist after a car accident. And in the middle of my treatment regime, she informed me that my health insurance company was dropping the reimbursement on the codes she used for my visit from $120 a visit they were paying her to $17. Wow. For an hour of her time. And how is she supposed to pay her front desk person and her billing coding person and keep the lights on at $17 an hour? That's not even a livable wage in San Francisco, let alone enough to operate a business around a reimbursement paradigm. And she knew I was a healthcare provider. So I don't think she shares this with her average patient. But that's a good example of the kind of problems that we're facing. And nobody really wants to call out the insurance companies and say, you know what? You're making billions of dollars in profit. You're doing it on the backs of patients and providers. And we need to get this under control. It's a really big problem. We have the only healthcare system in the world where we've got this middleman called the health insurer that's just, that's a publicly traded company that is beholden to their shareholders, not to doctors, not to patients. And I'm not going to make a lot of friends talking about this. (laughs) And it's not that I think that insurance companies can't be our allies because we work with insurers at Savonics and there are amazing insurance companies that are really operating very ethically and decently, but there's a lot of waste in the system. I read a statistic that administrative costs in the U.S. healthcare system are more than 50% of what you and I are paying for, and everybody poo-poos the VA. I've been a provider within the VA. It has its problems, but it has the best electronic medical record system I've ever seen in terms of interoperability. Is that they right? should have, yeah, they should have, like, commercialize that and take an epic out of business because it's really good. And everybody who's worked on it says the CPRS, they say the same thing about it. The other thing is administrative costs, I believe the last statistic I saw around two or 3%, not over 50. So at least the money is going to healthcare, not to somebody to sit in the back room and know what the billing code is for this insurance company versus this insurance company versus this insurance company. Mm -hmm. So If we could solve interoperability and standardization and take care of waste around administrative costs, I think we could do a lot in the U.S. And and so there's that. That is hindering adoptability of digital tools because you've got these larger problems that people are trying to solve. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a great call out and definitely the reality of the situation. Then there's the employer that employer sponsored plans. I mean, you know, I think there's starting to be a movement right now where employers are starting to get fed up with the cost. And so yeah. I, there's a groundswell happening and I think there will be some change. I don't know what that change looks like, but yeah, totally. I think that's a great call out that you're making right now, Amelia. No, thanks. And, you know, and going back to the provider, if I'm worried about how to get reimbursed and keep the lights on with what I'm doing right now, it's really hard for me to adopt new things. We artificially control the number of providers that we graduate into our healthcare system. We artificially control licensure passing rates in state for medical providers. So there's a lot of things that we could do to also expand the number of people that are available to provide care. Would also help because part of the problem is access, right? And I'm hitting the high buttons and there are no, everybody's like, well, what's the one answer? I think there is one answer. That's like saying, what's the one answer to Alzheimer's disease? Right, right. It's not one answer. It's multifactorial and it's a mm-hmm. complex, who knew healthcare could be complicated, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. And, and you know what it is? And that's why it's such a really like fun place to work and just gratifying when you do come up with a solution and you can scale it kind of like you guys are doing at Savonic. So I think it's yeah. exciting. I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear of the progress that you guys are making. And so let's pretend, Malia, that you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful today. It's the 101 okay. or the ABCs of Dr. Malia Sherva. And so <laughs> we're going to write out a syllabus, four questions, lightning round style, and then you'll give the listeners a book that you recommend to them. You ready? Oh, goodness. You should have prepared <laughs> me for this one. <laughs> it's part of the fun. Okay. All right. What is the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Get more data per individual and stop treating to patient averages. We must move toward individualized medicine. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Not being willing to admit what you don't know. And I'll give an example. Um, The famous aspirin study, right, Mm -hmm. that was done about preventing um, heart attack. It was done in 22,000 white male physicians. If I'm an honest doctor and I have an African-American woman patient in front of me and she has heart disease, can I look at her honestly and say taking aspirin will help based on that study? I can't. And so I think it is imperative that we as providers, as doctors, as nurses, that we practice deep humility around the human condition and what we know and what we don't know. Powerful. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? I think we we are constantly at Savonics. In fact, we're we're doing it again. We're going back to our mission, vision, and value statement and saying, is it still relevant? Is it still the right thing? Is it still what the world needs? And are we working towards the right thing? We do that annually. And I think that's a big part of how we stay relevant and how we make sure we're on course. Love it. What is one area of focus that should drive everything else in your organization? Commitment to personal purpose. Every single person at my company has shared with me in some way what we're doing at Savonics matters to them, whether it's a child with a learning disability or a parent with cognitive decline, um, a grandparent with Alzheimer's disease. And I think it's so important that I like to say that Iki diagram in Japanese, you know, my purpose is where what I'm good at, what I'm passionate about, what the world needs and what I can get paid for come together. And what I want for my employees, what I think makes our culture special and makes our company so powerful is that I actually want to have team members where what we're doing at Savonics hits on all four of those cylinders. 
Beautiful. And finally, Malia, what book would you recommend to the listeners on this syllabus? It's related to cognition. Oh. It would be Descartes' Error. Descartes' Error. Who's the mm -hmm. author? Antonio Damasio. Here it is. There you go. Listeners, you heard it. Descartes' Error, Antonio Damasio. We've got a syllabus here for you. All of the things that we just talked about, you don't have to worry about writing them down. Just go to outcomesrocket.com slash Malia. That's M-Y-L-E-A. And you're going to be able to find all of those, including a link to Savonics, as well as the book that she just recommended. Malia, all good things have to end, including this interview. But before, <laughs> if you'd like, I would love to just have you share a closing thought with the listeners and then the best place where they can get a hold of you. I think my closing thought would be, everybody asks me, you know, I give these talks and at conferences and when people approach me personally afterwards, it's never about the product, right? It's never like they're happy to take a test code and take a cognitive test, but usually they want to know, what can I do? I'm scared. You know, my grandmother had dementia. What can I do to stay healthy, cognitively healthy? And everybody wants to know, does brain training work and do crossword puzzles work? And the bottom line is there's evidence, there is very strong evidence for four things that are critical to staying cognitively healthy into late life. And you need to start doing them early. You can't wait until you're 60 and turn this on. In fact, let us have this, it. The, the, so here it is. Let us have you it. Gotta eat a healthy, you got to gotta eat a healthy diet. And I'm talking Mediterranean diet. All right. Get soda out, get fast food out, get processed food out. You've got to heat it. It's so critical. The other thing is you need to exercise physically every day. It's the only thing ever that has been shown to cause neurogenesis, the hmm. growth of new brain cells in the brain. Do it every day. Get your heart rate up for at least 30 minutes a day. The third thing is you've got to get enough sleep. And that varies by individual. I need six hours. That's kind mm -hmm. of like in my family even. That's how we're wired. Some people mm -hmm. need more but you've got to do it because you've got to give your glial cells an opportunity to clean up all the mess you make using that big brain all day. Nice. And then the fourth thing is you've got to interact with people. You've got to socialize and have social engagement and it must be face-to-face. Chatbots and phones don't work because when we look in MRI studies, our brain is most active, meaning it lights up in the most unique areas when we are looking at another human face. We've evolved to read other people, not to read devices. And right. we use more of our brains when we're looking and interacting with another human face than when we do any other activity. And so that face-to-face -face interaction is so crucial to our health, our cognitive health, as well as our physical health. So it's those four things, and you got to do them. Love it. Malia, huge value there. Listeners, make sure you listen to this again and again. And again, and then go do it. <laughs> I know I'm definitely going to be taking action here and I encourage everybody that's listening to do it as well. Malia, this has been so valuable. Thank you. What's the best place that the listeners could follow you or get a hold of you? So I'm on Twitter, which is just my name, Malia Charvat. So that's my handle on Twitter. Excellent. And I'm pretty active on Twitter. I usually am retweeting or posting original content pretty regularly. I have a blog on our website. And I'm also now a contributor. Um, as of yesterday, I, I did my first article. I am a contributor, an invited contributor on cognitive assessment and trends in, in digital cognition for psychology today. So oh, you can also... Uh, read, and I'll be publishing at least once a month on Psychology Today um, going forward about cognition and its relationship to various diseases. If people have particular things they want us to go help them find content about, 
they can email us at info at Savonics.com and my social media and content marketing person will pick those up and come and say, wow, what do we know about cognition and say hypertension, which was something somebody asked us about. And we'll try to get that into our flow of content because I'm really interested in helping people answer the questions that they have about how cognition relates to their health. Well, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, I think definitely having worked with Vanessa, she's outstanding. <laughs> Shout out to Vanessa. You're awesome. And yeah, so to the listeners, take advantage of, of these resources that Malia is sharing with you. And Malia, just want to take a moment just to say thank you on behalf of all of us and really looking forward to keeping up with Savonics and everything that you're up to. Thank you so much. Well, it was really fun being here with you today, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.